Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, June 29th, 2018. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. And uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Gabby, Erica, and Tiffany. Hey, guys. No, hey, Gabby. Gabby's no, Gabby. not here, though. <laughs> I thought she was here. Right. Uh, so today, this is the hazards of not being in the same room, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> So today we want to talk about food as medicine, let food be thy medicine, uh, and specifically we're going to focus on a documentary uh, called The Magic Pill uh, that is currently on Netflix and available in other places uh, as well, but if you have Netflix it's easy to find. Um, so <clears throat> I guess just to, uh, just to recap, like what overall what we're talking about is the uh, the history of our diet as a species, which is kind of weird because you can't really put it all under one umbrella, but you can look at indigenous people uh, and what they ate versus what they started to eat as Europeans were spreading across the country or across the globe, sorry, um, <laughs> and how that affected uh, the way our bodies uh, operate and the rise of uh, chronic illnesses and all sorts of maladies. Uh, for all sorts of civilizations all over the place. So that's pretty much what the magic pill is about, but it's it's focused on the idea that a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet is uh, much more healthy and sustainable long-term for the avoidance of chronic disease. Mm -hmm. um, that's the gist of things. So I, I thought it was quite good. Um, you know, some of our listeners may have seen it already, uh, and mm -hmm. if you have, uh, I mean, we'd welcome people to call in and, and give your opinion on the on the film um what did you guys think did you feel like it was uh informative enough yeah yeah i actually i i was very impressed by it i have to say because uh i mean you know it's not like there was any information i mean to anybody who's a regular listener on this show we talk about this kind of stuff all the time so there wasn't really anything where it was like oh my god i didn't know that like this is kind of stuff that we've covered quite a bit but just the fact that it is in kind of a, a mainstream documentary and then it's not just like YouTube clips of this or that. It's actually like a fully produced Netflix documentary. Like I was pretty impressed by it. Like the fact that it's, it's actually out there and getting, um, you know, a lot of um, people, like a lot of audiences are getting to see it. Mm. That, uh, that really impressed me. And unlike reading a book, it has that kind of feel-good factor to it because mm -hmm. it showcases like a few people uh, with the girl and the boy that both had autism and then mm -hmm. the diabetic woman and the aborigines in Australia and there was like a lot of touching moments mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah I guess we could uh, sum up because um, I have to admit that when I went into it sometimes I go into documentaries with a little bit of a preconceived notion like oh, this might be kind of boring you know depending on yeah what it is. and i was wondering <laughs> that when it started uh, yeah uh but it's not i mean it's very engaging and it was actually really you know by the time i got into it i you know when it was over i was like oh wow that was over really fast uh yeah because it's in extremely engaging uh, but it follows the stories of uh, a number of different people uh one is a, a group of indigenous women in australia right and then like mm -hmm. you said the autistic children uh, the uh, the woman who takes like 20 medications 
mm-hmm. uh, and that the, all these people are going to change their diet and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And the improvements that they run into are, are really staggering. Yeah. I mean, and I it also... Was, oh, God. <laughs> no, go on. I thought the the child's story was the was the most impressive. I mean, I thought the the indigenous people's story, the Aborigines in Australia, was kind of the most fascinating, as far because the way they were talking, like that interview at the beginning when they say, you know, when did this disease come and when did this disease come and how about before the Europeans and we were they were like, no, we were fine. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was very interesting, but the most sort of impressive and staggering was the result on. Uh, on this girl who has autism mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that she began to speak oh and, and the young uh the young boy too that they they were like completely non-communicative and then began to speak and began to operate now obviously they still are autistic but mm-hmm. their condition is so improved that like the parents are weeping and they're saying we don't have all these problems that we used to have um and the of course the quality of the children's life is much better mm-hmm. uh, it was really impressive and it's really just from changing their diet yeah yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing. Uh, the little girl who had autism, I mean, her diet was horrendous before. Yeah. Chick- yeah, chicken McNuggets and goldfish. Yeah, chicken yeah. McNuggets and little goldfish crackers was all she ate. So, and they didn't go into this part in the movie, but I guess she probably just threw major fits trying to change her diet. It wasn't much detail about that, but they said that she was probably just really, really hungry. And after about three or four days, she started eating what they gave her to eat. And she ended up just loving it. And she could actually pick the fork and feed herself. Yeah. And then the, the reduction time. of the drugs that she was on. One mm-hmm. thing that I found really emotional, the father sharing that they were spending $1,000 a month on her medication and mm-hmm. his insurance only covered about 70% of that. Yeah. But that it but- was pretty intense uh, morphine-based anti-psychotic medication and you could see in her face in the beginning how she just looked very different mm-hmm. on that yeah. standard American diet she looked dazed yeah 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 and after the after the diet change she was like you know you could you could even see it just from like them showing her before and then showing her after that she was way more engaged and like mm-hmm. looking people in the eye looking people in the face and like engaging with them and and laughing and all this kind of stuff it was really a remarkable transformation and not climbing all over the furniture <laughs> yeah <laughs> well it is an ex- extreme example because her diet was so atrocious i mean it's not like it was just having a lot of bread and like uh, potato chips it was like, like you said, it was Doritos and goldfish and then like chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so when you transition from that to a clean diet, I mean, you know, for anyone, even for a quote unquote healthy person, the transition would be staggering. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to discount it. I'm just saying they picked, they picked a really good example for this film. But I thought the, other, the other example that uh, the young uh, African-American boy who... Uh, almost became articulate, at least from what I could tell. I thought that was pretty incredible when they were uh, running him through a, a battery of tests to kind of see where he was at at a certain amount of time. Then he began to be able to articulate concepts in whole sentences, mm-hmm. which mm. for him was like a 300% improvement, right? Yeah, and um, they showed him see. making his food, and he would just put gobs of coconut oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
so I guess for, I mean, just in case some people might come across this who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, I have a feeling we're, we're kind of half preaching to the choir, but, uh, you know, what is this diet change that we're talking about? And I kind of wanted to just go over the basics of that real quick, even though it might be boring for some people who know this already. Um, <clears throat> but when you eat a lot of carbohydrates, uh, your body needs fuel, right? So your body burns uh, primarily glucose uh, in that state because it's converting carbohydrates into glucose. That's the simplistic kind of view of that. And so you burn glucose. So uh, you combine uh, fat and sugar that's where you get a lot of the chronic illnesses that we see today. So that's like kind of the middle. So there's like, you know, all rich carbohydrate diet by itself is not good for your body. What's even worse is carbohydrates and fats together. But when you knock out the carbohydrates or go down to a very low percentage and have a majority of fat, your body switches to burning ketones instead of carbohydrates or glucose. Uh, and that is a much more efficient uh, long-term energy source for the body. And it's not just that, but because of that, a whole host of other benefits come about. Um, mm -hmm. So we see a reduction in inflammation. Uh, we see an increase in uh, like neuron connectivity, um, all sorts of things. I mean, Alzheimer's, diabetes, they're all beat down by this diet. Um, and so yeah. it's not like a, the interesting thing I think about it is it's not a new thing. It's a very, very old thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, what's new is this carbohydrate sugar rich diet that we have. That was an interesting point. I thought that they made it in the documentary was that in the terms of human history, uh, this part of my French, but shitty diet that we have right now is not, is not that old. No, no less than you less know. than a hundred years, right? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, for the extreme aspect of it, but even when they're talking about the sort of uh, the widespread use of wheat and grains, even that didn't come about until like four or five thousand years ago, mm -hmm. which again in the span of human history is, uh, you know, the width of a hair. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> so that's the overall synopsis, of course, kind of like the layman's view of it. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I've gone in and out, I guess, just to share my own personal experience. I've gone in and out. I did like a number of years ago, I did the transition into full ketosis. Uh, I went through the flu and everything. That was the first time I had done it. So what they call a keto flu is when your body is basically flushing while you're doing this transition and you feel like you have the flu. For me, it lasted about a week. Um, I haven't had a recurrence of that since, even though I've gone in and out of ketosis a number of times. Uh, <laughs> twice, sort of in a quote-unquote bad way where I fell off pretty bad and then had to like, you know, use willpower to knock down carb cravings in order to get back into that mode of eating. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's not good to fluctuate back and forth. My fluctuations arise as a, you know, it's a result of me struggling with my willpower, if I'm quite honest about it. Because mm -hmm. every once in a while I'll have <clears throat> a little bit of like a sweet potato. And I'm like, ooh, that was really good. So then uh, <laughs> you know, potato doesn't sound as bad. And then French fries don't sound quite as bad. And then lazy potato <laughs> chips might come into the picture, you know. Yeah, that's the bad thing there. about carbs. It's like a slippery slope. Once you have a little bit, you start wanting a little bit more and a little bit more, yeah. and then next thing you know, you're, yeah, you're out it's kind of crazy. Because <laughs> uh, lately, actually, watching this movie and a few other things have kind of maybe get back on the bandwagon. I was kind of like for a while, just not being 
super strict about the diet and definitely a lot more carbs were kind of sneaking in. And like lately I was kind of looking at my middle and being like, you know, a little more padded than I have been in the past. So maybe it's time to get back on that. So watching this movie and, uh, and, uh, you know, a few other things kind of like maybe decide to, to do that again. And the other night I did, I had some potatoes and it wasn't very much, like it was like very little actually. But after dinner, I was sitting there going, hmm, I could really go for some chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I need, I just, just mm-hmm. need like a little sweet snack. And I was like, nope, that's not good. Mm-hmm. Clearly, clearly uh, I pushed the limit there. But I've already had potatoes already, so I might as well have chocolate. Chocolate is good for exactly. you. <laughs> I think that's the thing that, that might scare some people off. Aside from, to a lot of people who are in sort of like, a, we'll call it the standard American diet or the standard Western diet, uh, the idea of eating a lot of butter or of eating that strip of fat that's on the corner of a, a pork chop is, is kind of nauseating. Uh, mm. I, I, I remember feeling that way, and I know a lot of people that do feel that way. And they cut fat off not because they think they should, but because they really don't like it, or they don't think they like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a function of, of the state that their body is in, because when you transition to a ketogenic diet, you find yourself really enjoying all different manner of fats and like yeah. in different ways and preparing them differently and stuff. But I, I wonder almost if that's like... Um, you know, like candida will affect the brain and actually cause cravings. So it's in a mm. weird way. It's almost like it thinks for you. And I, and I almost wonder if there, you know, if that could be a result of the carb-rich diet would be an overgrowth of, of candida. And so it's actually convincing you that you think something is gross. Mm-hmm. Could be. I th- I think it's programming as well, though. I think mm-hmm. like you know, so many years of just media programming about fat being a bad thing and. You know, you can't even really buy cuts of meat very often anymore that actually have the full fat on them. And people are, you know, using these spreads instead of actual butter. Or if they do use butter, it's like just a little bit, you know, just just a taste. <laughs> That's it, just a taste. So I, I think that, you know, people have kind of been programmed to be kind of disgusted by that idea. But um, should we actually go to a clip? Because yeah, our first let's... clip actually is about fat and kind of the fear of fat. And it's um, uh, narrated by uh, Nina Takels. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. But she wrote the book, uh, The Big Fat Surprise. And actually, that's one thing about this movie is that it is like star-studded as far as like kind of the low-carb community. It's got, you know, Nina, uh, Nina Takels. It's got uh, Norga Gaudis, um, Tim Noakes. They actually um, were able Leah to cover Keith. some of Tim Noak's uh, trial. Yeah, mm-hmm. Leah Keith is in it, Joe Salatin. So, yeah, it's got like a whole bunch of really great uh, people. But this one specifically is uh, Nina Tickle. So why don't we listen to that? In the 1950s, the nation was really in a panic about the rising tide of heart disease that had come from pretty much out of nowhere to be the nation's leading cause of death. In 1955, President Eisenhower himself has a heart attack and he's out of the Oval Office for 10 days. The nation is fixated on this problem, an urgent public health problem. Nobody really knows what causes heart disease, right? There's a number of different explanations. Maybe it's lack of vitamins, maybe it's car exhaust. So into this vacuum steps Ansel Keys, a pathologist from the University of Minnesota, and he says, It's saturated fats. Saturated fats and cholesterol cause heart disease. Of 10 men, we can expect five to get it. 
That was his hypothesis. He had an unshakable faith in his own beliefs. He was called a bully even by his friends. And he was able to get his beliefs inserted into the American Heart Association. So the first ever dietary recommendations telling people to cut back on saturated fat and dietary cholesterol to avoid heart disease were issued by the American Heart Association in 1961. That's the beginning of the story. It's the tiny little acorn that grew into the giant oak tree of advice that we have today and that we can't back out of. What was the evidence for that recommendation by the American Heart Association? It amounted to one study, coincidentally, performed by Ansel Keys. That's the seven country study where he went to seven countries around the world, mainly in Europe, but also the U.S. and Japan. And he sampled nearly 13,000 men and he looked at their diet, he looked at their cholesterol, and then he waited to see who had a heart attack or who died of heart disease. I mean, he had a hypothesis that saturated fat caused heart disease and he was out to prove it. For one, it's very clear that he cherry-picked his countries. He had done a number of pilot studies. He knew where people were not eating much saturated fat and had low rates of heart disease like Yugoslavia and Italy. And he ignored other countries, also low rates of heart disease, like Germany and Switzerland and France, where they ate a lot of saturated fats. He didn't go to those countries, which would have disproven his hypothesis. His study showed that low saturated fat intake was associated with low rates of heart disease associated, but it doesn't mean that reducing saturated fat is what caused those people to suffer less heart disease. It was also true that these people ate very little sugar. In fact, they also found in that study that what correlated best with cardiovascular death was sugar. Then what ensued was a tremendous amount of science to try to prove Ansel Keys's hypothesis right. Billions of dollars were spent in large clinical trials, the most rigorous kind of science you can do. And they were done in mental hospitals and veterans hospitals, the kind of experiment that you can't do anymore because it's considered unethical. And at the end of billions of dollars of research, they could not prove Ansel Keys's hypothesis. So that was pretty uh, pernicious how that came about mm -hmm. and how that made yeah. its way into the, the zeitgeist, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think people have been looking into this for a while, probably have heard that story before, but, you know, it's it's the, the first time that I've seen it in a mainstream movie, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was a nice kind of like, you know, three-minute summary of, of kind of the issue. And if anybody's interested in looking further, Nina Tekel's book, um, The Big Fat Surprise, is actually goes into a lot of detail on that, um, that whole sordid story. Well, yeah, one well, of the uh, chatters says that <coughs> he has a local grass-fed butcher that gives him loads of free fat. Because like yes. you said earlier, uh, a lot of the butchers will cut the fat off and they just throw it away. Yeah. So you, yeah. If you can find a source of some good fat and grass-fed will be preferable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really yeah. precious resource. Or if you say to your butcher, listen, don't cut off any of the fat. Don't trim it. You know, I know that's how everybody else wants it. I don't want you to do that. Just leave it on. I get some, some pretty nice fatty pork chops from, uh, from my butcher. The same thing around here during a uh, hunting season. Uh, a lot of the butchers, mm. you know, will will mix in. Uh, it's very strange. 
I think I think it just comes from some sort of tradition, and I'm not sure how it started. But they'll make sausage, venison sausage, by mixing in pork sausage. But they throw away all the venison fat and bones. Mm. And you know, not to be fair, not all of them do that, but a lot of the guys who are really busy will, because some you know average Joe shoots a deer, brings it down. They just want a pack of burgers back, and they don't really care. Right. Um, so it's unfortunate, yeah. But uh, yeah, you'd be surprised. I mean, piles, piles of bones and fat. Mm. Wow. They even yeah. addressed that in the movie when the family of the autistic child bought a whole cow because they <laughs> yeah, wanted, yeah. they were they wanted to cut down on the price of you know what it was costing them to buy healthy food, and they actually labeled it. These bones are for your dogs, <laughs> and they made a point to <laughs> yeah. say, "Well, we'll make bone broth out of it." Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Bone broth is a is an incredibly nutritious um, food, mm-hmm. and it's really a shame that kind of it has really fallen out of favor. Although of course it's it's making a comeback now, but um, you know the idea that people were kind of throwing away their bones or giving them to their dog, it's like no 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 no, <laughs> you got to make broth with that. You got to get all that <laughs> nutrition. Well, I think that sadly we uh, well I say we, but uh, it had to be made cool again somehow and now yeah. it's like you know it's kind of hipster to be like a conscious carnivore uh which is fine i think mm-hmm. you know yeah if there's a if there's a social meme attached to it that that makes it spread around i think that's fine yeah absolutely. Um, but yeah i think to your point uh i was going to bring up like the transition and the idea of if if anybody who's listening to this is or has been eating a carb-rich diet and is like i feel like crap and want to try something uh, <clears throat> and I've talked to other people about this, and I, I don't know if it's like needs to be so important, but um, uh, the idea that it really is a struggle when you get into it, and that you need to kind of uh, steal yourself, uh, you know, for this transition, and that it's it's not like you're going to tear your hair out or anything, but the process of getting off of glucose as an energy source uh, can be pretty hairy. Yeah, it can mm-hmm. be like going through withdrawal. Yeah, which is basically kind of what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially considering the grains. I mean, all the grains that people are eating have these uh, opioid properties to them. So it literally is like kind of kicking a drug mm-hmm. when you're getting off that stuff. Yeah. But the thing about eating lots of broth and eating lots of fat, it's very satisfying and it really, really cuts down on cravings. And yeah. the amount of food that you eat. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that's what I I thought was really good about the movie was how they followed those certain people and they went into their homes and they rid their cabinets (laughs) of of everything. (laughs) It was everything, yeah. I I feel for me, I I was really fortunate to kind of be raised in an environment where my parents cooked everything from scratch. Like they didn't Mm -hmm. use a lot of packaged food. And and when I raised my kids, it was kind of the same thing, even though we did go through the vegetarian diet. But I feel like, you know, a lot of, especially these parents with these autistic children, like if you don't know and you don't have information and you're watching TV or advertising and you go to the supermarket, you think as it says healthy on it that you're buying healthy food. And to me, that was where the documentary really was kind of shocking that, how uneducated people are about mm-hmm. the processing and the packaging and the easy access means dangerous to your health. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's kind of like we, we live in a bit of a bubble, I think, because, uh, you know, we all kind of understand, you know, you read your labels. If anything looks completely processed, it's like, no, that's definitely a no. 
but um, so many people out there don't know that stuff. And, you know, it's, it was actually kind of shocking that, you know, the, the people would have stuff in their cupboard that said, you know, low in fat. Uh, heart healthy. Heart, yeah, heart healthy. That's the thing <laughs> I was trying to think of. Yeah, heart healthy. And it's like they, they actually said to them, like, listen, if it says this stuff on it, you can be sure that this is actually really bad for you. And the lower they go on fat, the higher they go on <laughs> sugar just to make it taste good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I remember a, a short anecdote from a friend of mine who will, of course, remain anonymous, but uh, trying to get uh, her partner and their son to eat uh, vegetables. And the closest thing uh, that she could come to was a, a, a broccoli flavoring for mac and cheese. Oh, my God. <laughs> <clears throat> that they would stomach, you know. What is uh, broccoli flavoring? Yeah. It's not uh, sulfur. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. sulfur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, what I was leading me to say that I think a lot of what a lot of people uh, think of as cooking is basically making mac and cheese, you know, or making pasta yeah. at home or like heating up a jar of spaghetti sauce and that kind of thing. And I think a lot of people haven't explored making food themselves. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be like a new hobby, although it, I think for a lot of people it would become one uh, mm -hmm. like the way it has for me. But you know, it's it's really not that difficult. You will find that you're you're much more ambivalent about spending three hours in the kitchen when the uh, the outcome is really good. You feel good. You start to notice that you feel healthier. Um, you're learning, so your mind is engaged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, there's even one guy in the film who you know they were there with the camera watching him kind of prepare something, and he was like frying up some vegetables and stuff, and he's like, "Oh, it smells really good with the garlic in there," and he's like frying stuff up, and they said, "Have you ever made anything like this before?" And he's like, "Uh, no." <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's like fried vegetables. You've never fried up some vegetables before, but yeah, that's the reality of the situation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people haven't, and I was yeah. also fortunate, Erica, to grow up in a, a like like you mentioned, having most of my food. Uh, cooked, you know, and my mom was like old world uh, house housewife. She was a mom, you know, so she cooked all our meals. There was a period of time uh, during high school where I, I and we actually, our whole family ended up eating a lot of McDonald's for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, I think because so my parents owned a bookstore and it was right down the street from McDonald's, so it was easy for me to come home from school and then we'd get McDonald's. But I also coincidentally got fat during that time. <laughs> so yeah, coincidentally. Yeah. Well, I think but, times uh, have as a changed. Child, I mean, yeah, I no. mean, I remember always, it was always a roast and vegetables. That's pretty much it, you know. And then once in a while, we'd have, like, ice cream or something. I mean, yeah. I still get anxiety going to the grocery store trying to shop for food, mm -hmm. you know, where you just got to, I think it was Michael Pollan that said stay on the uh, peripheral of mm, the yeah. store. And I know we've mentioned that in this show before. But you can imagine if you've never been around people who are cooking or had that environment growing up, that it can be very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And w once you get lost in the middle of the grocery store, I mean, sometimes just for entertainment purposes, I'm like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Everything is white, <laughs> you know, white bread and cereal and grains. And, and, it, and it can be hard to just keep walking and not just go, well, I'm just going to buy this packaged food. I don't have much time to cook tonight. And mm -hmm. Well, especially considering the guidelines that most people are given, 
like the food pyramid. I know they got rid of it and they call it my plate now, at least in the U.S., but it's still completely wrong. Like if you picture the food pyramid with the grains on the bottom, the biggest part is what they recommend that you should be consuming the most, but really you should turn the food pyramid upside down and eat the fats and the oils and the meats more. But I mean, it's really no surprise that people don't quite know what to eat. Like even the former chief of the FDA came out recently and said he doesn't know what to eat and that the FDA has failed abysmally in instructing (laughs) people on nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you really, I mean, at this point now, you do have to uh, educate yourself. If you just kind of follow what people say, you, you can end up with uh, gout and diabetes and all sorts yeah. of stuff. That's know. why I think this movie is a good kind of primer for people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we, especially us on the show, we've read a lot about it. And, you know, people ask all the time, well, what do you eat? And so now I'm just going to say, well, just watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can talk about it. <laughs> well, speaking of the dietary guidelines, should we go to the Tim Noakes clip? Yeah. Because he talks about that. He, Tim Noakes was a, a scientist, uh, well, a, a sports scientist, a doctor Physician. or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Physician, yeah, and in South Africa. And he actually ended up getting, um, almost getting his license taken away. But uh, I'll play the clip. It's, it's, uh, it's a longer one. It's about five minutes, but it's a very interesting story. We have lived a lie for 50 years. Professor Timothy Noakes is one of the very few scientists in the world who have an A1 rating. Sports scientist Timothy Noakes begins his defense against unprofessional conduct. The charges against Noakes were laid by the Association of Dietetics in South Africa after he advised the mother on Twitter to wean her child onto a low-carb, high-fat diet. The health dietitian tweeted, don't listen to him, it's a terrible thing to say, I'm going to report you. This was seriously harm our profession. The dietitian went on and lodged a complaint with the Health Professions Council of South Africa, that's that's the regulatory body for unprofessional conduct. That is the most serious charge you can level against a medical doctor. It's time for us to take charge of our nation's health. This is the modern day trial of Galileo. Good morning, it's the 16th of February 2016. We continue with the official conduct hearing against Dr. T. Noakes. And Professor, you are still under oath. Thank you, Madam Chair. This is a unique event in the history of modern medicine, that a scientist has been charged with giving unconventional advice and can get up there and say, actually, it is not unconventional. It has been in the literature. The Association for Dietetics in South Africa is very, very much a gatekeeper of nutrition advice and the official dietary guidelines of South Africa. It's time to look at the results and the outcomes and say maybe we got it wrong. And Professor Noakes is building a really powerful case for what really lies behind the epidemic of non-communicable diseases around the world. That's obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, even dementia that is now being called type 3 diabetes because of its links with diet. I'm talking about insulin resistance, which is so prevalent in this country. What actually lies at the heart of this case is the science, the wealth of evidence that supports low-carb, high-fat eating, and equally that high-carb, low-fat isn't so good for you after all. 
One of the definitive studies of the low-fat diet was done in the United States by the National Institute of Health to prove that the low-fat diet reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease and they invested $700 million into it. There were 48,000 postmenopausal women who were going to be studied for eight years. They were divided into two groups. 40% were assigned to the low-fat eating pattern and 60% could just eat what they liked. The low-fat group were told to reduce their energy from fat to 20% and from saturated fat to 7% and increase the fruit and vegetable intake to at least five servings per day and grains to at least six servings per day. So that would be the dietary guidelines for Americans. And what did they find? After eight years, this amazing study, the low-fat diet did not significantly reduce the risk of coronary heart disease, stroke, or cardiovascular disease and achieved only modest effects on cardiovascular risk factors. So after all that effort, that was the outcome. In the 35 years we've been following the guidelines, animal fats are down by 17%, red meat down by 17%, eggs are down by 17%, whole milk down by 73%. So everything we've been told to cut down on, we have cut down. And everything we were told to increase, we increased. Grains are up by 41%. Vegetable oils up by 91% fruit up by 13%, vegetables up by 23%. So on the whole, Americans have been following the guidelines. It leads you inevitably to the conclusion there must be something wrong with the guidelines themselves. There were parts of the study which were a bit worrying. And this was women who were sick at the start of the trial with diabetes. This healthy diet should make them even healthier. But it didn't. Women with diabetes at worse. And what, what I found interesting is they've never reported the eight-year data on the women with diabetes in that study. And you have to ask, why? When these study results are coming out, they're deeply inconvenient. This hypothesis has been adopted not only by the American Heart Association, but also by the National Institutes of Health, the entire federal government, medical societies, and a number of industries, the vegetable oil industry, ADM, Monsanto, Bungie, some of the biggest companies in the world, and the grain industry and the soybean industry. So these results had to be ignored somehow or suppressed. I've been left with a very disturbing feeling that, that this hearing was set up from the very beginning. We'll adjourn tomorrow at 10 o'clock sharp. There is much more at stake than a simple tweet. There are powerful vested interests. People stand to lose a lot, whether it's status, money, in accepting Professor Noakes' viewpoint. So, yeah, he really got <coughs> against the rails for that. It's, <clears throat> I mean, man, if you were to go out and <clears throat> really, excuse me, really do like an audit of all the advice that doctors give their patients. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, seriously. Man. Yeah, and, it, it's interesting because the, the, the journalist who's, who's talking there, who, who's kind of narrating that part, was uh, talking about how she, she was left with the uneasy feeling that it was a setup. Apparently, it totally was a setup. Like they actually uncovered emails between the um, mother who was asking him for advice on Twitter and the dietitian who actually f filed a complaint against him. So they totally set him up, like 100%. Oh yeah. And it's also interesting that the dietitian that filed that initial complaint against him was sponsored by Kellogg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big surprise. Yeah. Yeah. 
So if they crazy. had won that case, then basically it would have meant that doctors couldn't give anybody any nutritional advice. You couldn't write a blog or have any articles or anything up, you know, saying what to eat, basically. Unless, of course, it followed the standard guidelines and it would be yeah. okay. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. They could give they could give you advice that basically could conform to the food pyramid yeah. or the my plate or whatever the hell it is now. Well, it's kind of that way now. I mean, I say kind of because it's not codified that way, um, but you have doctors and nutritionists, right? And generally, people don't go to the doctor for nutrition advice. <clears throat> and if, if any of you have ever gotten nutrition advice from a doctor, it's atrocious. <laughs> yes, it's awful and very yeah. vague. They say, oh, well, just... Yeah eat healthy food yeah. and they assume that people know what healthy means and somebody goes yeah. to the grocery store and they see a bottle of canola oil and it, it says, says healthy on there and they're like oh okay yeah. <laughs> exactly five servings of fruits and vegetables a day okay that makes sense yeah but they should they should know i mean you know that's that's a blight on uh, western medicine you know and has been for some time that nutrition is a bigger part, uh, but that's I think one of the roots of uh, one of the root causes of where we're at. You know, is we, yeah. I mean, it's hard to trace it down to one main thing. But if I were to try, I would say uh, greed, essentially. And I know that that sounds like a kind of a simplistic answer, but it, just because of the way things happen and the way a lot of this was monetarily motivated by big mm -hmm. industry, you know. And they found out that if they, you know, they could produce more, like you, you can make a lot more money off of all of these grains than you can off of a, you know, sustainable, healthy diet. But, you know, it's a, of course, it's a trade-off. So do you want, uh, you know, the top tier uh, to have billions of dollars and make everybody sick? Or should we have like a little bit less currency in the market and everybody's healthy? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess you could say that about a lot of industries. Yeah. Big pharma, big ag, even big tech to a certain degree. Oh, yeah. For yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, Nina Tekholz was talking about the whole uh, um, Ansel Keys study that kind of started the whole thing. And if you really look at that, it's kind of, I think that he just was like an egomaniac, yeah. like just really kind of um driven by his own vision and like being a jerk to absolutely everybody else and like fighting his way to get his theory accepted and also fudging the data to make sure that he that his theory did actually fly but yeah. it's certainly like you know everything that's grown up around it like whether it was kind of like planned from the beginning it's hard to say but it it kind of seems like Basically, you know, he was pushing this and people started accepting it. And then then along comes like industry and they're like, well, actually, we can work with this. This is this, this works. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially when you think about big ag and you mm. know, their high inputs of pesticides and herbicides and oil, you know, and how it fit right into their plan. Because now they can mass produce monocropping and make tons of money. And then Big Pharma just piggybacks right on top of it, making money out of, off of all of the sick people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's not hard to kind of come at it from the perspective that it's all a diabolical plan. Mm -hmm. It's all been kind of put into place. Although, honestly, I, I honestly wonder if it's just that 
when you've got kind of something that's like a lie and it grows, it just kind of starts to, it's like a black hole that mm-hmm. starts to suck in all these other components and it grows bigger. I don't know. Well, maybe Doug, maybe that. you want to mention why this documentary caused controversy or what the controversy uh, yeah. is over it because I don't know if our listeners know, but apparently it's a controversial movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah There's a bunch of YouTube videos up about uh, the Magic Pill documentary debunked. <laughs> yeah, debunked by a vegan. <laughs> yeah. Almost all of them are vegans debunking debunking the film. But yeah, it is it is controversial. The guy, the one, the, it, I think it was a, a two guys who who made the film, and one of them is uh, Pete Evans, who is actually um, a celebrity chef from Australia, who is really big into paleo, big into the ketogenic diet, um, and he he has not been without controversy before because he uh, he had a cookbook that um, mentioned some stuff about low fat eating and or sorry high fat eating. And I think he even recommended uh, certain things for babies, and they just pounced on him. And like you know, you can't recommend that. And and uh, I think his book actually ended up getting banned, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, he made this movie, and had a deal with Netflix. And it was it's been put on Netflix uh, Australia for a while. And the Australian Medical Association, I think it was, um, basically started petitioning Netflix to take take it down. They said, uh, you know, this is this is dangerous. This kind of this information, people are very vulnerable to this kind of information, and it it needs to uh, it needs to be banned. But Netflix was just like, no, we're not going to ban it. And in fact, um, thanks for stirring up all this controversy because the views are going off the off the hook, and we're going to translate it into other languages, and we're renewing the contract for another year. <laughs> so. It kind of had the exact opposite effect of what they were hoping for it, but it is very controversial. And it's not surprising when you see the rest of the documentaries that are up on, um, like food-based documentaries that are up on Netflix, they're all vegan. Like, almost, like you know, it's probably like 90% of the food documentaries you see on Netflix are vegan documentaries. So the fact that this one actually managed to get in there and is getting popular is actually quite something. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It is a good move uh, for, I guess you would call it, the movement uh, of at least of getting some more awareness around this topic. It does seem uh, interesting that I think, I don't know how to put this clearly necessarily, but I was thinking about this yesterday, that uh, it, it ties into politics in a weird way because when you think of, or like, I don't know, sociopolitical issues where you think of people who like meat or are carnivores or you would think of as being like conservative kind of right wing and people Mm. who are vegans or vegetarians might be kind of liberal or more you know live and let live um and i i don't think i'm just making that up i think that that is kind of like an undercurrent like perception that's associated with these you know political ideas uh because it you know it it comes down into every other area of life as well um but I think that that uh, comes into play where you have people who, uh, like for instance, somebody who is uh, pro, you know, anti-abortion, say pro-life, but but uh, but anti-war, and and how do they get into describing that position that they hold, you know, um, <clears throat> and 
when you have people who might find themselves in a circle of friends who a lot of them are vegan but maybe not all of them but everybody's kind of like left-leaning uh, that when you start talking about a high-fat diet you actually start uh, bringing political topics into the conversation. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I'm making sense or not, but it's gotten this weird, it's like bleeding over into other areas of society. Absolutely. Well, the vegan thing like overlaps with the SJW thing like quite right. nicely. So yeah. I think that you see, you actually see that a lot. It has, it has become, you know, food in particular has become incredibly political. Now, I don't know that the, the, the meat eating right-winger thing necessarily exists maybe it's more of a reactionary kind of thing to the the sjw like extreme regressive lefty kind of thing yeah but um but yeah i think that there's no question that the the vegan slash vegetarian slash environmentalist kind of uh thing is is a very political and is very left mm-hmm. yeah but what is that was that in france with the the vegans and their vicious harassment against yeah. butchers. And I think there was Friend. another case in Canada somewhere where vegans were harassing this uh, yeah. this meat restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a restaurant in Toronto called Antler. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. they, 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 they dared to put on one of their signs. I think it was venison is the new kale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was a vegan riding past there on his bike and saw the sign and was absolutely outraged. So he yeah. organized a protest and they started protesting out front of this restaurant. And it's a small-scale restaurant. And the ironic thing is that they're all about game. So it's like they, they have like, they're very much about sustainable farming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's all like game meats, you know, venison, wild boar, all this kind of stuff. And so it's like, it, it, they're kind of like focusing on the wrong area. Although the vegans will tell you that there's no such thing as sustainable farming, even though that's nonsense. <laughs> but yeah. um, what ended up happening, the reason it ended up making the news and stuff is because they started protesting, I think, every week. And at one point, the uh, the chef owner of the restaurant got so fed up that he came out and actually butchered a, le- a leg of venison, <laughs> sorry, a leg of venison um, right in the front window in front of all these vegan protesters. And then disappeared into the back with it for a while and came out with a big steak on a plate, like just by itself, just a big venison steak and like sat there and ate it right in front of the the vegans. So it made the press all over the world. He was even on Joe Rogan, actually. (laughs) Yeah, in his interview, he when they talked about that incident, he was just like, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I was just fed up. You know, it's like, come on. will you get Okay, I'm just going to cut up a leg in the window. Like that was kind of where his head was at. And I, I can't blame him. I mean, one, you know one angry person rode by on a bike and decided to make a thing about it and caught on and this poor guy is like struggling just to keep his restaurant open which shouldn't yeah. be a, a thing you know i mean yeah if people don't want to eat there that's fine that's what having a restaurant is about but you know when you have to deal with people actively trying to shut you down every day yeah it's crazy well, apparently yeah, he's actually doing better yeah their business is oh, booming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I so the vegans, the mad crazed vegans, would actually do themselves a favor if they just ignored the restaurant yeah. or they ignored this documentary. Because the more, the more they protest, the more they call attention to it, and the more attention they attract to, to the documentary and to the restaurant. So they're actually yeah. doing yeah. themselves a disservice. <laughs> Yeah. And if they actually drive people to watch the documentary, I think the documentary itself is very convincing. 
-hmm. Like if you're not already possessed by a vegan ideology and you're somewhat open, like it's a very persuasive argument because there is so much science behind it. There is so much evidence. Yeah, well, and the uh, the death per plate argument I think is a really interesting one, and it's it's hard to bring up though. I brought it up once with one person, and since then I've actually held off from bringing that up unless it's like a really specific time because it's uh, it's a sensitive thing. You come across somebody who is relatively like you know <clears throat> tender-hearted and meek, and they don't eat meat because they don't want to cause suffering, and that's just where they're at, you know. And then you tell them that there are more deaths per plate when you eat vegan than there are when you eat a, a you eat beef, you know, or ungulates or something. Then it, it's it's like deeply offensive, not in the sense that they get offended, but it's offensive to what they thought of themselves, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> so it's a hard thing to it's a hard topic to broach, especially with somebody who is kind of like, you know, meek, because uh, mm. you have to realize you're kind of treading on soft ground. Now there are other people who if somebody wants to like puff up and get like angry vegan about it uh you can bring that up but then it's really not going to do that much good because they don't believe that statistic so it's just like flat earthers don't believe that any photos from space are real if you're just <laughs> into a wall. you know yeah so i mean it <clears throat> there's a lot of that i think is really interesting not to get off on a tangent but just like how um you know the idea that uh reverse racism isn't real right now there's a lot of people that like that uh, a lot of issues about which one side believes that the other side's argument is completely false. And it's not like a normal, like, okay, we're, we're on this side and you're on that side. It's like, there's no room for discussion to the point that what you believe, like you are lying to yourself and I know that for a fact, but both sides of any given argument are saying that to each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I heard somebody put it, I thought a really succinct way uh, a couple of days ago that <clears throat> the reason it feels so crazy right now, and this goes into the diet thing that we're talking about too, not just like the socio-political atmosphere, but in just talking about food or about caring for your kids, of which food is a part, um, that everybody feels threatened. Like mm-hmm. all the genders feel threatened, all the races feel threatened, young people, old people, everybody feels threatened by someone. And so that's why it's just so heightened right now. Um, and it's, it's just so hard to talk about things. But back to the point that when you talk to vegans who might, or vegetarians, but mostly vegans are the militant ones I, I, would, I would find, um, mm-hmm. about you know, deaths per plate, uh, you just get shot down as a false statistic. Well, you're just lying. Like, okay, well, let's look it up. Well, no, I don't have time to do that. You know, <laughs> like, there's a lot of people you just can't have a reasoned kind of discussion with. Tell them to go spend a day on a farm. It won't take too long to figure out. Well, and it's, I mean, it's it's a convenient, like, uh, debate kind of topic, too, because you can't really go down that road very far. You have to get them to then admit that they think that it's, that it's worse to kill one cow than it is to kill a hundred (laughs) mice. And so, okay, now we have to, like, graduate your, your value of life and where does that land, you know, and... It, it gets really complicated, and a lot of people who base their ideals on what they tout as being a, a, a value for life and living can't explain, you know, why why they uh, hold the beliefs that they do. Because if you really, I, and, and I think this very firmly, um, but again, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but if you really value life, you understand that death plays a role in that. For sure. You, you know? Yeah. In fact, we're, since we're kind of on this subject, should we uh, play the Joel Salatin clip? 
Yeah, yeah. that was a good one. Okay. We're here in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and what we do is pastured livestock. In nature, herbivores live in large groups, and they migrate. All we're doing is duplicating that kind of migration, it's moving the animals across the land so that this choreography, this ballet of the pasture, can perform its dance on the grass. When people say eating this way is unsustainable, oh, listen, it's not only sustainable, it's actually what we call regenerative. It allows the grass then time to regrow, to recuperate. Grass is essentially 95% sunshine. This takes sunbeams and converts it to something that has weight. And amazingly, the herbivore can take this, ferment it in her rumen, and turn this into arguably the most nutrient-dense food in the world. Grass grows in, in what I call, you know, an S-curve. You can see that S. So diaper down here, teenage, rapid growth, and then nursing home out here. What we want to do is keep this forage in this rapid growth state as, as much as possible. So the role of the herbivore in nature is actually to prune the grass to restart that rapid uh, metabolic capacity. This is what builds soil, hydrates the landscape, and actually sequesters carbon. This, this is the system. When grass is allowed to be as productive as it's supposed to be, it actually is far more efficient at converting solar energy into biomass than even trees. That's why all the rich, deep soils of the planet are under prairies with herbivores. And if every farm in the world would do this, we would sequester all the carbon that's been emitted since the beginning of the industrial age in fewer than 10 years. When a confinement animal facility shows a picture of this hog factory or chicken factory or whatever, they're not showing all the land that's required to grow the grain to keep it going and all the land that's required to handle all the manure that it's generating. In this system, you're seeing all that land. I think a lot of industrial agriculture thinking is that, that the earth is a, is a reluctant lover. Whereas actually, we view the earth as an abundant loving partner who responds to caress, who responds to care. And if we will come humbly to the land, why, it's ready to give us way more than we could have wrestled from it. This is the, the mystical, awesome cycle of life. And to be able to be this close to it has a humility to it, a perspective that is actually quite profound and, and actually quite historically normal. I love that man. Yeah, yeah. he's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love his kind of salacious description of farming. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's like, you know, speaking of the vegans and like the whole environmental slant to it, you know, it's <clears throat> there's a lot of propaganda floating around right now that meat eating is bad for the environment. And yeah, I mean, that is true if you equate all meat eating with factory farming. Because, yeah, that's an environmental shitstorm. That's absolutely terrible, of course. 
But the fact of the matter is, is that it completely ignores what Jewel Salatin is doing and what other kind of pasture raising farmers are doing, which is actually the best thing you could possibly do for the environment. It's way better than like uh, monocrop farming. You know, all these vegetarians who think that they're, you know, doing the environment a favor when they're eating, you know, stuff that's grown in, you know, soy fields that are just acres and acres of this like uh, environmental genocide, essentially. Like it, it just, it, it's so aggravating because, you know, when you see somebody like Joel Salatin who's actually doing amazing things for the environment and people are like oh yeah i know that's not that's not environmentally friendly like mm -hmm. even if you look at the even if you rely on the ridiculous like idea that carbon is you know man-made carbon is 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 you know changing you know causing global warming or whatever they're calling it now climate change like even if you use that model it's still way better to do what joel salatin is doing like he's talking about sequestering carbon yeah, well, that, that involves was like, nuance, and yeah, if you're yeah. a rabid militant vegan, vegan, you you can't see the nuance. It's all black and white. Either you're killing animals and you're evil, or you're not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's why conservation is extremely hard to uh, to talk about, and I, I think that you know that definitely farming should come into the conservation. A conversation that was kind of a tongue twister <laughs> <The> conservation <laughs> conversation uh, but like you said that factory farming is really really environmentally damaging um, but that sustainable farming is exactly the opposite and helps the environment and gets us mm -hmm. to a place where we can keep going for quite a while and my sense in hearing Salatin speak is like to the like I guess a, for lack of a better word we just call them rabbit anti-carnivores you know the, like where's your righteousness when you can clearly explain that this is way better for the environment than what you're talking about. Agriculture is bad. It's mm. little, you know, community gardens, growing vegetables, sustainable agriculture is not bad. Mass, like modern agriculture, the way it's been done is bad. It's, I mean, it caused the dust bowl, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. if, 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 if you've not looked into that at all, take an evening and like read about the dust bowl. It's crazy how that went down. Um, <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> I guess like just trying to echo your point, Doug, that people like to get righteous about this being an ethical cause when you can explain, you know, that, that it's the opposite. And this it comes back into this thing again that I'm having a hard time trying to explain where people are butting heads against each other, uh, finding it impossible to reach the other person's perspective. And it's, it's making a lot of these discussions really, really hard to have. And even when you lay down, like when you approach the step of the conversation where you're going to start to lay down facts and talk about things, it becomes very uncomfortable and it's hard to proceed. You know, it's just like talking about saying trophy hunting is bad. Okay, well, that's dumb because some of it is and some of it isn't. You know, and so you need to have nuance around the conversation. Some trophy hunting pays for entire communities in Africa to live and survive when they've been ravaged by other you know things that happen in their region you know yeah. other times yeah it's just some rich asshole who wants to shoot something so i think there's, that's there's, rare though yeah well there's nuance in in everything is what i'm saying and so it may again like yeah. with the wild hog thing in texas people are mm -hmm. decrying you know helicopter hunting of, of hogs <laughs> which and the fact that we find ourselves in this place again i don't know if people know about that or that's another fascinating thing you can look into uh, William Randolph Hearst back in the day released a bunch of hogs because uh, I forget what his 
reasoning was, but over time they've they've exploded and moved across the United States to the point where now in Texas a lot of these wild hogs have exploded. They proliferate like rats, and so <clears throat> they now are the the state just legalized that private companies can go and hunt these animals because they're damaging all the farms, uh, everything. They're killing pets. They're doing all this stuff. They're just like ravaging the countryside. And so now people see in the media, oh, you know, some blowhard wants to helicopter hunt hogs with a machine gun. Of course that guy's an asshole, and he represents everything that's wrong with America right now. When in reality, it's a guy who is trying to save his community from from an invasive species, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. have some fun while he's doing it, I think. And, you know, yeah, some of them have fun. I mean, what are you going to do, you know, honestly? <laughs> yeah. It's like, Yeah. Well, and hogs have no natural predator either. <laughs> right. Is the yeah, same well, thing has happened in Hawaii. Right. Well, in, in Hawaii, you have the axis deer too. Isn't that a thing there? Where well, like, not so much, but the pigs uh, just destroy everything. Yeah. You know, they just root up a, a lot of native species and whatnot. So there's a there's you can actively shoot pigs in Hawaii as well. Yeah. So I guess my point is where we find ourselves in a place where due to the way humanity has moved around the planet and established itself and caused all these you know, cities and civilizations and we've affected the, the landscape and the wildlife and how that's moved around. And so now it's, we, we can't just let it go back. Like for instance, like you said in Hawaii, if you let these hogs go, they will destroy everything. You have to kill them. Mm-hmm. You can't put them in a box and send them to Louisiana you know, you, you can't like, you can't do it any other way. And so that discussion needs to happen. And when you confront people with that fact and they start to say, well, 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 there's another way. There's really not. Um, mm-hmm. And that plays into a whole bunch of uh, different issues. And Maybe I think they want a, a hog sanctuary. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Where they, Could be. They'll just end up dying of disease because they would mm-hmm. just pack the place. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the whole, di- there's a joke where I think it's, it's always made me chuckle in a in a bad way, like in, in kind of like a oh man kind of way, because people like to make fun of hunters by saying, "Well, you got to kill them so they live," right? That's the way to make fun of a hunter because it makes them sound stupid, but that actually is the case, <laughs> and and it's really hard to get into that conversation with people. So, anyway, well, I think that to... plays into the diet issue as well. Sure, absolutely. Sorry, go ahead. I cut you off there. No, I was just going to say, I think, uh, well, I was just going to open it up to a whole new conversation. I think maybe uh, instead we should maybe go to one more clip. Yeah. Okay. When they rounded up the tribes in this country and put them on reservations, they were starving and the U.S. government gave them commodity foods consisted of white flour, sugar, and lard. What do you do with white flour, sugar, and lard is you make fry bread. It's our concentration camp food. The fate accompli of what we call manifest destiny, what happened to all of the aboriginal peoples of the earth since European encroachment, wasn't accomplished with guns, it was accomplished with food. Dampa has become number one for your little people. <laughs> Settlers, missionaries, they gave us Dampa and our grandfathers, grandmothers and all our families. They liked it. 
That is looking yummy. These modern displacing foods were being brought in as rations by the missionaries. They're very addictive things like tobacco and sugar and flour. You must have a damper with a syrup or a jam. It's required. Yeah. Must be. Must be. <laughs> but even if you took the syrup and the jam and all that stuff off of the damper, it would still be. It would still be bad. You under, it's still yaka yaka menmak yaka menmak yaka menmak. Maize has become our staple food. It's called pup in South Africa. It's mostly prevalent in impoverished rural communities. In South Africa, that's mostly our black population. So when we talk about maize being the staple food in Southern Africa, we have to understand how it got there. It was a decision by the South African government to produce maize on an industrial scale. And the question is, well, was that good for our people or not? It's not indigenous. It was never indigenous to South Africa. All our maize is genetically modified. It's refined. It's high carb. You might as well be eating a bowl full of sugar. And dietitians, including the one who laid the complaint in the first place, are proponents. And I'll argue that it was the introduction of maize and making this a staple food, which has been a problem for us. Meritage objection. I really can't see how the details about something based on a conspiracy theory is relevant. Madam Chair, in respect of the influence of industry driving the obesity epidemic, there were sponsors for Atsan. There were a number of sponsors, including Kellogg's, Pillsbury, etc. If you work with a flawed model of just energy in and energy out, you forget about how behaviors are modified. You forget about how addiction comes about. You forget about how advertising uh, influences the whole epidemic. I am submitting that that is irrelevant. The objection is overruled. Professor Noxi may proceed. Thank you, Madam Chair. What I learned during the process is the key to this debate, that industry completely controlled what the information coming out to the public was. And I expose that in one chapter. These guys know what they're doing. You know, it's not an accident, I don't believe, that people are hooked on all this junk and processed garbage. The Global Energy Balance Network was a front for Coca-Cola. There's something bigger going on here. The whole food system needs changing. What Coca-Cola is doing is to control the messaging of obesity globally by controlling the scientists. One of the tactics that industry uses is they'll fund studies that are designed to confuse the record. Their goal was not to talk about obesity, their goal was to confuse the public. Almost all scientific conferences depend on industry funding, even to discuss a subject. There's no funding, nobody's interested. Nobody wants to even talk about it. It's like depriving a field of oxygen. I've repeatedly been told that there's no evidence to support a low-carbohydrate diet. That's incorrect. This is a randomized controlled trial published in 2008 by Dr. Finney. These are expensive trials and there's no money to do it. He does not get funding from the National Institute of Health. He has to go and raise his money himself. This is the evidence. He's putting people with a metabolic syndrome, half of them on a high carbohydrate, low fat diet, and the other group on a high fat ketogenic diet. Look at the results body mass and abdominal fat, high fat outperforms high carbohydrate, low fat diet. 
Triglycerides are one of the key markers of metabolic syndrome down 50% on a high-fat diet. We tend to overconsume carbohydrate in this country because it's addicting, but also because we produce it in ridiculous amounts. If you fly from New York to LA, the majority of what you're flying over all those little circles and squares on the ground, that's America pumping out carbohydrate as fast as it can. That's the 30,000 foot view, that's what's happening, and that's reflected in our grocery stores. Now here's the HDLC, which we all told is the good cholesterol. What we're not told is when you eat a high carbohydrate diet, your good cholesterol comes down. And you go on a high fat diet, HDL cholesterol goes up. There isn't a single multinational corporation on planet Earth that wouldn't stand to profit from every man, woman, and child consuming a carbohydrate-based diet. The very particles that are damaging our arteries are increased on a high-carbohydrate diet and reduced on a high-fat diet. It's incredibly cheap to produce, it's highly profitable, and it keeps you perpetually hungry. What could be more perfect? No, this is even more remarkable. Saturated fatty acids in the bloodstream, which greater your risk of heart attack. Now you eat more saturated fat, and the saturated fatty acids in the bloodstream go down. Pharmaceutical companies are profiting from this. Weight loss industry is profiting from this. Undertakers are making out like bandits. About the only people that aren't profiting from, from all of this are, are the rest of us. So there you go. Excellent summary. Yes. Yes. And you heard a, a bit in there from uh, Tim Noakes' uh, trial. He was the one who was giving all those uh, scientific um, study results. And uh, it was really interesting because you heard the, the other lawyer accuse him of uh, propagating conspiracy theories and raising an objection, and it got overruled. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like, yes. Yeah, well, that, that one stood out to me. That guy's accusation was pretty flimsy anyway. I mean, you know... <laughs> Anytime you bring up the idea that some people might have colluded to achieve a certain end, you can't just knock it down by calling it a conspiracy theory. It's like well, they can try <laughs> trying to imply that that never happens. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's but really yeah, I mean, kind it, of bizarre that people. I'm sure a lot of people don't read evidence, don't read studies, don't read books about how certain diets are good for you or, or bad for you, but. Mm. For people to have watched this documentary and still come out against it, you kind of wonder, like, what is going on in their brains? Yeah. Very little. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of it might be that um, <clears throat> a function of religion. Mm. You know, maybe not necessarily a religious mandate, but that same mechanism in the brain that causes you to dig in when you have a previously held belief. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Jordan Peterson talks about it as ideological possession. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I think I think that's exactly what's going on there. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of those discussions where you want kind of like when we were listening to that last clip, I was thinking, you know, if people want to argue this, you kind of want to just be like, just go read about it. Like, I don't have time to get into <laughs> well, just watch the movie. Just yeah. watch the movie because most yeah, people aren't right. going to read about it. No. <laughs> right. And even then, it's like a documentary. Well. Yeah. I don't know. There's no yeah. pretty people in it. <laughs> no hit songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we have a uh, pet health segment for today, so let's let's go to that, and then we'll wrap up when we come back. And uh, we just got a, a pretty crazy storm rolled in here, so if I disappear, that's why. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I go off air. <laughs> 
Okay, here's... Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. This week's topic is, why do animals have such different lifespans? For the microscopic worm, life may equate to just a few short weeks on Earth. The bowhead whale, on the other hand, can live over 200 years. So why are these lifespans so different? And what does it really mean to age anyway? Listen to the following recording and find out. Have a great weekend and goodbye. For the microscopic labworm, C. elegans, life equates to just a few short weeks on Earth. Compare that with the tortoise, which can age to more than 100 years. Mice and rats reach the end of their lives after just four years, while for the bowhead whale, Earth's longest-lived mammal, death can come after 200. Like most living things, the vast majority of animals gradually degenerate after reaching sexual maturity, in the process known as aging. But what does it really mean to age? The drivers behind this process are varied and complicated. But aging is ultimately caused by cell death and dysfunction. When we're young, we constantly regenerate cells in order to replace dead and dying ones. But as we age, this process slows down. In addition, older cells don't perform their functions as well as young ones. That makes our bodies go into a decline, which eventually results in disease and death. But if that's consistently true, why the huge variance in aging patterns and lifespan within the animal kingdom? The answer lies in several factors, including environment and body size. These can place powerful evolutionary pressures on animals to adapt, which in turn makes the aging process different across species. Consider the cold depths of the Atlantic and Arctic seas, where Greenland sharks can live to over 400 years, and the Arctic clam, known as the quahog, can live up to 500. Perhaps the most impressive of these ocean-dwelling ancients is the Antarctic glass sponge which can survive over 10,000 years in frigid waters. In cold environments like these, heartbeats and metabolic rates slow down. Researchers theorize that this also causes a slowing of the aging process. In this way, the environment shapes longevity. When it comes to size, it's often but not always the case that larger species have a longer lifespan than smaller ones. For instance, an elephant or whale will live much longer than a mouse, rat, or vole, which in turn have years on flies and worms. Some small animals, like worms and flies, are also limited by the mechanics of their cell division. They're mostly made up of cells that can't divide and be replaced when damaged, so their bodies expire more quickly. And size is a powerful evolutionary driver in animals. Smaller creatures are more prone to predators. A mouse, for instance, can hardly expect to survive more than a year in the wild. So, it has evolved to grow and reproduce more rapidly, like an evolutionary defense mechanism against its shorter lifespan. Larger animals, by contrast, are better at fending off predators, and so they have the luxury of time to grow to large sizes and reproduce multiple times during their lives. 
Exceptions to the size rule include bats, birds, moles, and turtles. But in each case, these animals have other adaptations that allow them to escape predators. But there are still cases where animals with similar defining features, like size and habitat, age at completely different rates. In these cases, genetic differences like how each organism's cells respond to threats often account for the discrepancies in longevity. So it's the combination of all these factors playing out to differing degrees in different animals that explains the variability we see in the animal kingdom. So what about us? Humans currently have an average life expectancy of 71 years, meaning that we're not even close to being the longest living inhabitants on Earth. But we are very good at increasing our life expectancy. In the early 1900s, humans only lived an average of 50 years. Since then, we've learned to adapt by managing many of the factors that cause deaths, like environmental exposure and nutrition. This and other increases in life expectancy make us possibly the only species on Earth to take control over our natural fate. I thought you were going to say they were long-lived goats. <laughs> that's what I would have said. That, oh, that's a little bit All right. Well, I guess uh, we'll wrap it up. So uh, thank you to everybody for tuning in. Um, get out there and eat some fat. And watch and that movie. Yeah, and throw your chips away. And tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So thanks again uh, to everybody, and uh, be sure to check uh, radio.sat.net this weekend for uh, the other two shows, and we will be back next week with a new topic. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.